0: Welcome to Ride Pure, the Royal Enfield podcast, a podcast about Royal Enfield motorcycles, the people who create and build them, you, the people that ride them, the things you do to them, and the places you explore on them. I'm Gordon May, Royal Enfield's historian, author, and overland motorcycle traveller, and I'll be hosting today's Checkered Flag episode. So put your earbuds in, crank up the volume, kick back, and enjoy the show. As part of the Continental GT Cup race series, it's our great pleasure to have as our guests a British family race team that has been competing in classic races on Royal Lenfields for the best part of 17 years. They are brothers Ian and Paul Henshaw and their father, David. Thank you for joining us today. So how did this all begin?
1: Well, basically, I had, um, I had a big head, theory. Uh, Um, which at that time was uh, in a cafe racer form. And uh, Ian, at this time, had gone to uni to do this uh, racing motorcycle design and engineering course. Paul had started his business. Paul had originally been a marine engineer and had worked as a superintendent from the company that I used to run. And um, it was at that time that uh, just sort of half-joking... I don't know whether it was Paul or whether it was Ian, but we were all together, the three of us. And one of them remarked, do you know what, Dad? Would you like us to make this bike go as fast as it looks? And basically, that was the thing that sort of kicked it off. And in actual fact, that bike was became the first race bike. Yeah,
0: that was so. For, so for those listeners that um, don't know what a big head fury is, this is a, a, a 500 bullet that was specially tuned for the American market in the early 1960s. So you had one of these, uh, David, if I'm right, in cafe racer form, and that became your first pucker racer. Yes, that was the first
1: race bike because when uh, when Paul and Ian worked on it between them, uh, they. They got it going quite quickly, and it was decided then that how about having a go at this uh, VMCC racing? And that's when uh, Ian made one big mistake, Uh, as we probably all did, is we went along to watch them at Mallory Park and decided, yep, that's for us. We're going to race. Well, before that, if I just cut in, we were going to show all these old codgers a thing or two. Oh, that's what I was about to say. That's what I was about to say. Ian Ian, Ian had this idea that all these old codgers, I'll show them a thing or two. Uh, but it didn't work out quite like that. And uh, no doubt Ian will let you in on that secret. But so come on, Ian, tell us what happened.
2: Yeah, so it was one of those things. Um, yeah, a bit of uh, hubris setting you up for a fall. Um, so we, we went out and yeah, what we thought was quite a fast bike. Um, I mean, the first race, uh, we went out in, it was going fairly well. I think I'd got myself into the, the top 10 through, uh, it, it, it was not through skill. It, it was through, uh, ignorance and bravado, I think, wasn't it? I think it was, yes. Ignorance and bravado, um, And then I got bitten very hard because we'd never done anything like this before. And I was using old um, Continental Super Twin Sport Touring tyres. And yeah, I had a big, big slide. But what is a big slide on a race tyre is an immediate loss of grip and on your ear on a non-race tyre. Um, but I think,
1: I think that was one of the problems is really ignorance is bliss. I mean, we really didn't know anything about race tires at that time. Uh, no, and nobody told us either, you know. We thought that good hard road tires would last longer as well and give more value for money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so did you actually come off in that first race Ian? Uh, I did. I had I came off
2: at about uh, 80 miles an hour. I tried to get up before I'd stopped moving, and I flipped over and um, separated my shoulder.
1: Yeah, and the, the, the irony about all this, the other part of the story was, his mother, Meryl, <laughs> my wife, because it, it was a local race, it was at Pembrey. she decided she would come down. So she came down to watch the racing, and she arrived uh, right after this incident, and she was waiting to cross the circus into the paddock, and there was ambulances everywhere, and she said to the one of the marshals, she said, Oh, what's happened? Oh, he said, there's been a bad accident down there. <laughs> she said, Do you know who it is? <laughs> and he said, uh, No, he said, but... Uh, he said, I think it's rider 244, four, which I think Ian was 244 four at that time. <laughs> 224, <laughs> yeah. Two, two, yeah. And uh, <laughs> So the net result was mother came down to see her little son race, and mother had to go to Glangwillie Hospital uh, and have his shoulder put back in its socket and everything. And then, being the sort of boy he is, he told mother all sorts of lies, because he came out and uh, the doctor had said to him, well, that's you. you won't be racing again this weekend. And he came out and he said, uh, oh, I'm all right to r- race now. He said, I can race on Sunday, <laughs> which he duly did. <laughs>
0: so, so <does> I've so <laughs> never winning, found out about that for a long time. So does this mean <laughs> that uh, that your wife, uh, um, Beryl, doesn't go to watch Ian race anymore?
1: Well, she has done, She, but only when it's been mainly local and or Anglesey. Right. But, um, unfortunately, now Beryl's uh, suffering with Parkinson, so you know she's just not really up to going to them anymore. But uh, yeah, she was. Uh, I think the last race she really enjoyed. She was down at uh, Pembrey. I think it was 2010, and Ian was out on the 500, and uh, he had three first finishes and a second finish, which should have been a win only he looked for his rival who was on his tail on the wrong side and thought he was all right, and his rival
0: shot through on the inside and took the win. <laughs> well, there we are. So so uh, we've heard about this 500. How many race bikes do you actually have?
1: We've got three. Um, we've got the 350, and we've got the current 500 that replaced... 500 number one as we call it which is still in existence and my dad's got that now and it's as a sort of it's more a street scrambler style bike now I would say isn't it Um, yeah yeah the third one we don't use uh we used to take it along as a bit of a backup for Steve Cottrell's Crusader we've got the 250 Crusader as I call it because uh (laughs) it was a a pig to keep going it it, it always had little issues and blow-ups and all sorts of things but we've actually got that complete and running and just put away because hopefully nothing can go wrong with it while it's not being used but the um, the, the main two now are uh, the 350 and the 500
0: uh, but,
1: um, yeah when we went into a, another bike in actual fact um, we built a 350 or Paul and Ian built a 350 uh, which was the start of this bike which yeah. has been developed over the years yeah. but yeah. Um, that wasn't very quick but it, it's amazing how development comes about because what happened is because we arrived in royal enfield steve cotrell who's very well known in racing circles he's had about i think the bike his bike is 250 crusade and won about six or seven times the championship with different riders and yeah. this rider had finished And Ian was riding the Enfields, by this time, a 500 and a
2: 350. We need to... as I think Paul was going to say about how the 350 came about.
1: Yeah, the 350 actually happened as a result of a meeting early on at Cadwell when we had the old 500 still going, and that was all we had, wasn't it? And if the 500 broke down or anything, that was it. The race meeting was over, and we wanted another bike to sort of fall back on, so that especially when you went all the way to somewhere like Cadwell or perhaps down to Lyddon, you got one bike and then it breaks down on a Saturday and you've got pretty much wasted journey in the weekend. And at Cadwell one time, a guy approached me with a Royal Enfield 350 engine, or most of, in bits, and offered it to me for £100. So I bought that. Didn't really think anything of it. job. It was just nice. It was something I had spare parts to do something with. When I got home... I sort of realised, well, we've got frames, we've got hubs, we've got crankcases, we've got this, that and the other. And I said to uh, Ian and Dad, actually, it wouldn't take too much to build another bike and then at least a second bike along to meetings with us. And should one bike break down, hopefully we can carry on and sort of do something with the other one. And uh, the 350 actually came about as a result of that guy selling me the engine And me thinking, right, let's see if we can squeeze it into one of these Crusader frames I've got. I've got hubs, I'll build some wheels. Of course, we had to buy a few things for it. But uh, overall, we probably had about half to two-thirds of the bike in kit form ready to put together. And that's what started the 350 off.
0: Mm. I think maybe I should have uh, introduced all your roles within the team much earlier than this. So that was actually uh, Paul speaking. So Paul is the uh, mechanic who builds and, and as I understand, repairs these race bikes. Um, and Ian is the rider. And uh, David, you're the wallet, I understand.
1: Well, yeah, this cheeky younger son of mine, yeah, he referred to me. Taken, really, from uh, Mike Halewood saying about Stan Halewood. He used to, <laughs> Mike used to call his father Stan the Wallace, and uh, <laughs> Ian gave me that nickname. He said oh, to someone else, he said, Save the Wallace, uh, which which is perfectly true because, as I said to you earlier, and I think both both would agree with me, that probably the money we spent, or I've spent, I should say, over the years on development. To get these bikes to where they are, uh, I could have probably gone out and bought a bank, no, no problem at all. But
2: uh, <laughs> that, that, that would be quite the same. No, no, well, is anyone, is much fun. no, anyone can have one of those, can't they? Mm. Yeah, and not only
1: that. I mean, it's not one of these, except as this is the only one on the planet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ian, out of the three or four that there's been in total, which is your favourite to race?
2: oh god that's um that's like asking someone to pick between their children um, <laughs> they've all got um different things so um I do really love the 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 talk and the the manx frame with the five hundred that is um that's really really nice That one feels most like a race bike um the three fifty because of the class we race in, we can't, we're limited with um, brakes and suspension and things. So the 350 is a lot more uh, lively. It's a bit more of a of a rodeo ride, but we, we've done a lot of work with the frame and things like that to stiffen it up. Paul has done amazing things with that single leading shoe front brake. I can outbrake people with Fontana four leaders with that, and it is absolutely spot on um but yeah that that little bike when you really really push it hard you go in into corners i think i scared graham buller one year because um we're going into the hairpin at the top of Liddon, and i was going into that and he i think he was eyeing up trying to make a pass but it was going in with the rear wheel locked up and hopping sideways and i think he changed his mind a little bit and just sort of left it um and also, the 350 is fantastic the way it revs. And because we've got it, uh, the limit is set to 10,000 RPM. Well, nine yeah. and a half, isn't it? But yes. yeah, sometimes it looks like it's going to hit 10, but it yeah. does be really worth,
1: doesn't
2: it? Yeah. And um, we've got that set up with a motocross kill switch, uh, which I use as a quick shifter, so you don't have to close the throttle. Um, and it's fantastic. You get up to, just as it's approaching 9,500 revs, you hit the kill switch and select the next gear, and it sounds like someone's just unloaded a shotgun behind you as it, as it um, reignites the unburnt fuel that's gone down into the exhaust can.
1: For poor old Graham Buller, who's the other champion in the 350 series at the Mount at Lyddon, was following literally on your back wheel all the way round, but he just couldn't get past you, and then the last lap, he gave up. But every time, time, he must have felt like someone was shooting him with a (laughs) 12-door shotgun, because we could hear it, whether you could hear it or not. Every time you changed gear, it was bang, bang. (laughs) Well, we've got YouTube footage of that entire race, and you can actually see and hear it. Yeah, it comes down the hill and into the uh, right-hand corner at the bottom there, and the bang, bang, it comes through in the uh, the YouTube video, yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with these circuits because they'll be outside of the UK. So maybe you can give us a rundown of some of these famous old British racing circuits that you take your Enfields to.
2: Mm. So um, Lydon is, that's formerly owned by McLaren. They bought it. Uh, to be a test circuit that's down in um near Dover, um, but they couldn't get planning to expand it as a test track, so that just sort of um, it people will have seen a lot of it. It's the one that they use in Top Gear all the time, they where they raced buses and caravans and stuff round Um, that's Lynn. Um, then yeah, uh, Pembre is our local circuit, um, that was owned by Honda, because for a long time, the lap record outright there was held by Erton Senna when he was in the McLaren Honda. Um, so it used to get used for some F1 testing back in the day. It's an ex-airfield circuit, so it's quite flat, but it's a very good layout. Uh, and Then you've got the more famous ones, Mallory Park, that's a scene of all of the transatlantic trophy races back in the day. Um, Cardwell, incredibly famous because of the mountain, it's the circuit with the jump. Um, and then, yeah, we do get some visits to um, uh, Alton Park, which is another sort of, you know, classic British heritage circuit. Don't forget your favourite, Anglesey. Yes, there's Anglesey. Um, Darley Moorcroft. Yeah, and also we've uh, we've been over to Donington Park once as well. Um and so, they're not in
1: Scotland as well, aren't they, for the Bob McIntyre race?
2: Yes, there is a, a Bob McIntyre memorial meeting up at uh, the East Fortune Circuit, just, um, I think it's just uh, east of Edinburgh.
1: And then, of course, yeah, the favourite circuit that we don't go to anymore, Three Sisters.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that was, um, that's one, it's, it's a very tight technical circuit, but... Um, yeah it's, it's it's not one of the not one of the favorites but um
0: mm. so so where was your first win my first win
2: was at the old angles circuit um and that was in the rain um that was in what they have they, they had a, they used to have a thing called the champion of champions which um it was a race series for the number 1 plate within the club And what happened was throughout the race weekend, they'd take everyone from the the top three podium finishers in every racing class. Um, And what they'd do is they'd put you in a race with uh, a staggered start dependent on your best lap times. So the idea was is that you'd have people going off on like BSA Bantams and stuff first on the slope and it would gradually increase in size as you go down the grid. And the idea was is that, Um, due to the spacing, on the last lap, everyone should be together. So it would be the slower slower bikes would go off first, the bigger bikes would go off last, and the idea was everyone would come round together. Um, And I actually, um, yeah, I won that in in very wet conditions on um, Steve's Crusader, and that was the first one, which I think is why I've got a bit of an affinity with Anglesey. Um, but did,
1: did, hang on, here, Ian. Wasn't your first win on Steve's at um, Oakland Park?
2: No, that was my first dry win. Well, mixed win, but no. My first win win was that wet race at Angles. Oh, yeah. Okay. So.
0: So. Um, Paul, perhaps you can tell us, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I can actually see Paul at the moment sitting in a room with uh, a stunning-looking race bike behind him, and it's a shame you can't see this. Um, Can you describe this bike and what you've actually done to prepare it for racing?
1: Yeah, um, basically, and we we call this the the Royal Enfield 350 Clipper, originally because not only is it a little bit more of a slap in the face for someone on a Goldie or a Manx to get beaten by a Clipper than a Bullet, but because nobody could actually say it wasn't a Clipper. Now, if we'd said Bullet, they could have said, hang on, it's in a Crusader frame, so therefore it's not really a Bullet. But Clipper, in Royal Enfield terms, or Reddit's Royal Enfield terms, terms is such a grey area, there were 250 Clippers both unit and pre-unit, and there were 350 clippers, pre-unit types, and so no one could actually say that is not a clipper. So we went with the clipper name anyway, but basically it's a a tuned 350 bullet engine, as was, put into a slightly modified and uh, beefed up Crusader rolling chassis, and it makes a very nice, light, compact bike. But the latest incarnation of the engine is actually a short-stroke engine, and it's a 500 engine that's short-stroked the 500 bore until we came down to 350. So we've got the same 84 millimeter bore as a 500 bullet would have, but the stroke is actually shorter than that of a Triumph Tiger Cub, and that enables it to rev well past 9,000 RPM quite safely. We've got a big head, 500-bullet head on it, because being a 500 Top end, essentially, but short-stroke. We can take advantage of the big head ports and valves and everything, which gives a huge advantage over the old 350 head. And we've even got an inch and a half GP carburetor on it. An inch and a half equates to about 38mm, to give you some idea, in metric suite. So we've got massive ports, massive valves, and uh, a huge 504. And I didn't really think that the engine was going to work I didn't even know if it was going to do much more than start and be able to run because it's so oversquare; square, it's almost too oversquare. square. But as it happens, it came out much better than anyone expected. And although it's got no more horsepower than the older, more bullet-like engine that preceded it, very similar in fact, 34, 35 bhp at the rear wheel is about the most we've seen from either type. The beauty of this engine is... Although it's the same power as the previous engine, it's clear of 30 brake horsepower for a spread of some 4,000 RPM, whereas the old bullet-style engine, the power graph came up a steep line, up to a peak, and then dropped off to nothing. This one, it just climbs early on and then goes along almost flat and drops off very slowly at the end. So you've just got this whole wide rev band where you're clear of 30 brake horsepower, and... It's just a fantastic engine, and it's usable from just shy of 5,000 RPM right up to the 9,500 when the red limiter jumps in. And uh, Combined with the five-speed box, which incidentally, with a bit of work from, and calculations from here, we've actually got a close ratio conversion, which we had custom-made for that five-speed box, and another one on the uh, 500 as well. It's just a fantastic little bike, and it, it, it's so light and flickable and nimble, handles, I wouldn't say it's the best handling bike in the world, but it handles well enough. It's really good fun to be on, and uh, that says a lot for anything, really. Yeah, I, he, I, I would just say one thing about the uh, this business of the engine and what Paul's done with it. Under the rules with uh, British Historic Racing, um, we can get away with having the big head on it and short stroking it because the rules say that it has to be, the components have to be of the make of the bike, i.e. Royal Enfield. But what you do to it is anything that could have been done in the period. Well, that covers, from 1960, because it's a pre-62 bike in the ratings, you know, there's no reason why anyone else at that time couldn't have got a big head, stuck it on the bike, etc. Mm-hmm. So,
2: and also the bonus of... Um, as Paul said about the short stroke, the stroke is actually within 0.3 of a millimetre of a Crusader, I believe. So technically, that could have come out of Redditch with a bit of uh, a bit of a bit of work. They could have done that at the time. Most, most of
1: what you see there, or I'm describing there, yeah, was available in the Redditch factory in the early 60s. Perhaps not the five-speed gearbox in that guys, because that's an Indian five-speed box, but. Royal Enfield were developing a five-speeder, both for the 250 road bikes, and they had the racer, the, uh, the GP5, of course, which was running five gears. So basically, the whole concept and most of the components were or would have been available to them if they'd had perhaps the imagination or the desire to produce it, they could have done. And uh, but what you these, I would have probably produced this and called it the Continental TT.
0: Right. But so my understanding is, with the classic race regulations, uh, from what you've said, you couldn't now take a Royal Enfield disc brake and bolt that on because that's not appropriate to the era of the of the bike.
1: You might well, you, you, you might the specials. You can in the specials because Ian has disc brakes and everything, mm. you know.
2: Yes, but you couldn't use a modern Royal Enfield one. So it's got to be a disc brake of the period as well. So. Uh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And as you say, though that break now, all work Paul's done on it, and the lining some classic reline services. I mean, that break, you complained about it years and years and years, saying after about three or four laps, I've got no front brake, <laughs> I've got no front brake. Uh, now, as you say, that brake now really works perfectly for you. You've never complained about it since it's been done,
2: have you? No. No, it was. It used to be a case of you would pull the brake. You'd stand on the rear one for just sort of comfort, really, and um, yeah, you'd you'd pull the front brake lever back to the bar, um, and when you got to the apex of the court, you know, to the corner, you'd have to turn in with how fast you were going, and um, yeah, you couldn't really sort of tactically try and outbrake someone. You just sort of Made it round the corner. I remember one of my competitors having a bit of a surprise when he went to turn into the corner, and because the front brake had overheated, I had to se- essentially just put my front wheel into his armpit. <laughs> 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 so I, I, that was, you know, sorry, but <laughs> this That's is where right. I am.
0: <laughs> um, so the, um, this bike, this 350, um, has, I understand, set some lap records and had championship wins. Is that right?
1: That's it right. It's it's won races. It's uh, won a championship in 2018. And it was 2018 when it uh, broke the, lap, the standing lap record for bikes in its class on Anglesey. Uh, well, the can tell you about it, but he, he broke the lap record three times in the one race.
2: Yeah, it was um, the year previously. I think we'd got within three tenths of a second of uh, a guy called Tim Jackson. Um, his lap record on an AJS Seven R um, that I think that had stood since I think it was about two thousand and nine. Uh, 2009, he'd said yeah. that. Um, and I noticed in 2017, I was going through the results and I thought, we're really close. We're really close to getting a lap record. So the following year with the bike going really well and, and everything, um, I, I took a, a, a different a different front tire. Um, we, so we swapped tire manufacturer uh, from Dunlop to Continental. Um and I had really good feeling and grip with it. Um, and also it smoothed out an area that used to be a bit um chattery on the circuit. And um yeah, we went out and rode on the Saturday. Um we had a we had an issue on Saturday morning with the swing arm, which caused me to have a DNF. Saturday afternoon we went out and um we got close again, but no cigar. And then Sunday, it was a damp, warmer. Went out and had a really good run round in the warm up, got a good feeling with it. And then it dried off in time for the race. Um, and I just, yeah, I thought, this is it. This is the, the time we've got to go for it. And um, yeah, pushed and pushed and pushed as hard as I could. Um, every lap, my dad was on the pit wall with the stopwatch. He knew what time he was looking out for. Um, And about halfway round, he gave me the thumbs up because I think he'd seen the time, but obviously weren't sure. And I kept on going, kept on going. Um, Won the class. I was second overall in the race. Um,
1: But, well, it's worth pointing out, Ian, as well. The race was made up. It was a mix of pre-62 350s, uh, Honda K4s and Ducati 350s. Yeah, yeah, and three fifty specials. Yeah. 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 And there was so, only the one Ducati in front of you. And he was only just in front of you.
2: Yeah. So that was that was that was quite good. And um, yeah, uh we, we we sat around waiting for the results to be finalized. Um and yeah, finally finally got it and got the got the results sheet out and um yeah, saw that I'd beaten Tim's that record and uh, it, yeah I think that was one of the, the more emotional days I've, I've had riding I, I had a bit of a cry about that because it was you, you can win races and you can win championships and things like that but for me to have a lap record that says that you're the fastest one ever not you were the fastest today with who turned up or in the situation it was like right you've, you've done that and I think you know, that beats any trophies that might be on the shelf, you know, having that.
1: And is, I think we might have had a bit of a cry about the big end as well, because <laughs> like, <laughs> after you took the flag and set your records and got your championship, I think you were about halfway round on the cooling down lap, weren't you? When it did just made a nasty noise and stopped and it was the big end that tightened up, was not it? Well well that, that that's yeah. when you said to uh Ian, what revs were you doing in the race? And he just his answer was all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you stripped the engine down to have a look, the crank was blue, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But um, but but also, I think you you, you beat uh, Tim Jackson's lap record by a good margin too, Ian, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: yes. Yeah. I, I think we I think we put about three or four tenths of a second yeah. off. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't sound a lot, but in racing terms, I mean three or four tenths. I mean you'd you'd sell a kidney for three or four tenths racing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can hear there's been a hell of a lot of development work um, as the bikes have evolved. Uh, and also there have been certain um blow ups of various components, pistons perhaps big ends. What happens to all these parts? When you have to replace them,
1: we have the, the, the worst one we've had. I think is um, on the five hundred, and that was at Lyddon, wasn't it? When the poor old Kevin Thurston came off on the oil you dropped here. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah that was that was one. Um, yeah, that was on the the five hundred, and that was a a, a, con, a catastrophic conrod failure. It uh, yeah, was an
1: unbreakable conrod
2: that we had as well, wasn't it? Apparently. Um, well, apparently, but um, yeah, it ended up in fourteen pieces. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that was when I was, I was, uh, I was thinking back about this. That was the the one where you took the plug out, Paul, and had a look inside to see how bad it was, and you saw the piston was sideways up the barrel.
1: Yeah, and yeah, didn't
2: you have to? Didn't you have to sledgehammer it out of the barrel? The, the,
1: the crankcase, the crankcase had the big hole in it because that's where all the oil came out, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. but
1: but there was a, it, it turned a bit political all that as well, didn't it? Because Ian was leading or second in the championship, was it at the time when we had that race. race? And they stopped the race, didn't they? Because it been the blow up and Kevin Thurston had come off, and they. Because the race was over halfway through, they took the the positions of the bikes up to that point, weren't they? And Ian was in the lead. Mm. So Ian won that race with a hole in the front of his engine. Kevin Thurston got disqualified for coming off, but he came off on Ian's oil. (laughs) And then uh, the following day, obviously, the 500 had blown up. So we asked for permission if Ian could use the three fifty in the five hundred race and yeah, that was fine and he would score points with it and no problem. Well, all that was okay until Ian won the bloody race. Give <laughs> him the points. There's a three fifty Royal Enfield won a five hundred race. And uh, No, I, I didn't I got I, I got a podium. I got third, I think, and yeah. I didn't win it. Oh, yeah. you, did, you did win a 500 race on the 350 at one time at Lyddon, but, yeah, you're right. You, you, you certainly got a very good place in. And you got, I think you got eight points that got taken off you, didn't they? Because yeah. uh, someone complained. Yeah, yeah. The 350 scored points and, and took a third place in the 500 race, so they didn't like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've got a bit of... Um, with with all of these, um, these pieces, we've got a bit of... Uh, a Bert Monroe shelf, haven't we, of offering of to the gods of speed of lots of mangled and destroyed components in Paul's I mean, workshop.
1: Yeah. What, they call it the Black Museum, isn't it, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we'll have to we'll have to make some sort of ornaments out of them and maybe I don't know, offer them for sale or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, as you know, in India now we're just starting the Continental GT Cup. So this race series gives uh, riders the opportunity to test their skills without having to go through all the pain that you've gone through all these years in learning the how to develop a bike to make it race competitive. Um, what would be tips you could give to those riders who for the first time are going out there and wanted to compete in a race? They must have the right tyres. <laughs> well, fortunately, that's been taken care of because uh, that Royal Enfields worked with a tyre manufacturer to select a tyre exactly right for the bikes. And it's a level playing field. Everybody's on the same bike.
2: Yeah. So I'm guessing this is similar to uh, what they had with things like um, uh, the... The old back back in the 80s, they had the old um, RD 350 championship where the riders would sort of go into the signing on office and just be given a set of keys for a bike. You know, all the bikes are identical. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it, it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting series, I think. Um, for starting out, I'd say the biggest. Uh, thing to focus on is staying calm and focusing on your breathing when you're racing. It's very easy, um, especially when you're starting out, to get yourself into a situation where you you get yourself really riled up and really tense, and then you, you find you're even holding your breath. And you sort of get get to the point when you're on the start-finish straight and you start to relax, and then all of a sudden you're... Oh, my God, I was holding my breath, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, how, how many... Um, how many riders on the grid are there going to be in this
0: series? Uh, you're going to have to cut this a little bit, Ian Clark, because I can't answer that. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Uh, don't know. Uh, don't okay. Know. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we'll probably cut that question out. <laughs> um,
1: so none of the bikes, none of the bikes, can be touched mechanically. Then on that basis,
0: they're literally. No, you can't that, improve the performance no that's right but this is a good question to ask Paul for those wannabe racers out there who would like to improve the performance of their bikes what what would say would you say is the most important thing they can do to get uh, the most immediate results
1: probably uh, make sure that your engine is set up perfectly as it should be I mean even down to uh, any slight discrepancies in the valve clearances from what they should be, get everything set spot on as you can. Um, bearing in mind, now, this is a bike that you can't meddle with or anything, I take it, um, you've just really got to make sure that things like your brakes are releasing completely, no drag at all. This, this Getting back to this bike, I can put this bike up on the uh, bike lift and spin the wheels on it, give them a flick, and they're probably still spinning half a minute later on. Now, there's there's no point in having 50, 60, 70, whatever horsepower if your wheels are going to rob you of 5 or 10. So make sure the wheels spin nice and freely. Everything's lubricated as it should be or not lubricated as it shouldn't be in the case of brakes and so on. Chain well oiled. That oil on the chain, actually, we've seen a gain of almost 2 horsepower on a dyno. Just by oiling the chain between one run and the next so all little things like that tire pressures spot on if they're too low you'll get more drag from the tires if they're too high you're not going to get as much grip obviously so where you where you've got a bike that really you can't make any personal tuning adjustments to you just got to really make sure that everything will be in top trim and the other piece of advice would be if all the bikes really are the same You've got to watch how many beef burgers and things like that you eat because I always remember seeing a guy on a lovely Norton Commando race bike and it was a big, powerful thing. It went well. It had holes drilled everywhere, you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. the guy who was about 18 stone sat on it almost eating a beef burger in one go and he just think, well, why do you drill all those holes? So perhaps look after you, you know, watch your weight and stay fit even, I would say, might give you an advantage. You know, you've got to think of All the little things that all add up, tiny contributions added together, make a bigger thing that might just be worth having. Mm. And also, I think Ian can tell us that one, can't you, is um, talking about tyre pressures. I mean, obviously, it's going to be out in India, but by the same time, they get a lot of rain. I mean, Ian, they refer to him as the Welsh rainmeister, because if it's raining... Ian will beat anybody in the rain. That's it. Finish. And, uh, but again, the tyre pressures, I think, Ian will tell you, are quite critical from the dry conditions, warm conditions, to cold and wet conditions. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that's critical in a wet race is to warm your tyres on the warm-up lap by accelerating and braking as hard as you can because um, I did look into... Um, my performance in the wet. And I noticed through the lap times against my opponents who had maybe beaten by about 20 seconds or so, I looked at the lap times. And the lap times weren't terribly different apart from lap one. And that was where I was getting them. I was putting the time in because my first lap while people were sort of getting a feel for the conditions and warming their tyres up, I'd already done that, and I was gone. Um, and it's, yeah, it's something I'd always thought I was faster than everyone in the wet, but I'm not. I'm faster than everyone on lap one in the wet.
1: <laughs> well, I, I would, I would cancel that, because we checked one time, I think it was with Dave Darby, when you had that Ducati at Anglesey or one of those, and I remember him saying that you half a second a lap faster than anyone else in the wet.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, but uh, the the advantage is on the first one. Yeah. The first lap I'd be about 8 or 10 seconds quicker. Yeah. That that's that's my key advice for wet weather is warm your tires on the warm up lap as best as you can. Accelerate hard, brake hard. Um don't worry about the swerving. That's that's more for cleaning the edges off but yeah, that's what I would advise.
0: Those are great tips for everybody. Thank you very much for those and thank you all three of you for coming along and sharing your stories, your memories, your experience with us today. I'm sure uh, a lot of our listeners will have found this really interesting and will have got a lot out of it for their own riding. So uh, David, Ian and Paul, thank you all very much indeed. Okay,
1: it was a pleasure. Thanks, Gordon. Thanks for having us, Gordon.
0: Thank you. That almost brings this podcast to a close. A huge thanks to our guests, David, Paul and Ian Henshaw, for sharing their experiences, tips and entertaining stories with us, and to you too for joining us. But before we say a final farewell, here's another Gordon's History Nugget. We all know the story of the Flying Flea, the Royal Enfield airborne motorcycle used by the British Parachute Regiment during World War II, when it was dropped alongside paratroops into major battles, such as at Arnhem and the D-Day landings. But do you know that after the war, the Flea went on to become a huge success as a civilian motorcycle? Known as the Model RE, the 126CC two-stroke was light, easy to maintain and very economical. From 1946 through to 1954, when it was superseded by the 150cc ensign, it sold in tens of thousands to a war-weary public looking for affordable transport plus a means to get away from it all. Both these qualities were amply demonstrated by an Australian vicar in 1950. The Reverend Donald Campbell of Glenelg in South Australia rode his Model RE on a 1,726-mile or 2,760-kilometre journey from Adelaide to Albury in New South Wales and back. He averaged 144 miles per gallon, or 51 kilometres per litre. Over one section, he even averaged 178 miles per gallon. That's 63 kilometres per litre. No wonder period Royal Enfield advertisements proclaimed the RE as a mechanical miracle and the Prince of Lightweights. Well, that really is all for now. Do remember to join us for the next Ride Pure podcast. If you have ideas and suggestions for future episodes, do get in touch by email, ridepurepodcast at royalenfield.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like, add us to your favourites, or even leave a review. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until then, we wish you great roads and safe riding.